0: Home, it's where you build your legacy, where traditions are started, seeds are planted, meals are shared, and stories are told. We are Chris and Natalie Carpenter, owners of Story Real Estate, and our team of top agents helps people find homes in Moscow, Idaho, and around the country.
1: Have you thought about a move? Contact us to get
0: connected with a top agent who shares your values and puts your family first, or reach out to us about our Moscow Relocation Guide. Wherever you're looking to go, we can help you find home. Call us at Story Real Estate or visit us at storyrealestate.com and start building your legacy. Well,
1: thank you. Goodness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we get to be here. We thank you so much For the vision to have this conference and for all these wonderful souls who are filling this room. This is an amazing thing that you are doing. And we we pray that it reflects the outpouring of your spirit on this country. The growth in wisdom and boldness among your people. And an opportunity to see a new great awakening and a new birth of freedom. We thank you for this time. We ask for your blessings on your certainly inadequate speaker at this time. And we absolutely, Father, come before you in love for your only begotten Son. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Folks, you live in the best time in the history of the world. You do. Now I'm going to warn you, it could be about to become the worst, Totally could. But that's true in every generation. Have you actually read the book of Judges? Anybody? Okay, you might have gotten some cool stories out of it, but what you should have gotten out of it is that these battles have to be refought every generation. And the thing that gets lost, I notice, because I teach all the way through the Bible every single year, I have a for-profit company, I'm not one of the preachers, and um, at my company, my, my staff reads uh, Genesis to Revelation all the way through January 1 to December 31 every single year, and we do Bible study on Monday mornings for four hours. Professor Martin teaches, and uh, the rest of them try not to yawn too much where I can see it. And uh, there's probably some, you know, watching of TikTok videos and stuff. You just never know with these people. I don't know why I pay them. But regardless, that's what we do. So I've got people who have been through the Bible all the way from beginning to end with me several times. That's kind of a cool thing to do. You should do it. Everybody's got a different Bible study they like and all kinds of different orders they like to read the Bible in, assuming that they read the Bible at all, which most Christians don't, but you should read it cover to cover every year because God didn't just inspire the words, he inspired the order. He did. And that means there is stuff you can learn from the order in which he reveals himself in the word. So whatever you're currently doing, do that. That's great, but do this too. You will find it transformative over time. You'll start to see the big picture. They gave me a title of To the Moon and Back. You might have gathered I'm a big picture kind of guy. It seems to me that the Bible needs to be seen from a big picture point of view. We kind of pride ourselves sometimes on digging in on one verse and really studying this one verse for a month, you know, and uh, this demonstrates how holy we are or whatever. Sometimes you need to step back and actually see the forest and not just the trees. You know, God sees the whole forest. God had figured out exactly what he was going to do with you before the foundation of the world. He had actually decided exactly what your height was, exactly what faults you were going to have, exactly what virtues you were going to have, exactly what gifts you would and would not have before there was an earth. He's a big picture guy too. And it's important for us to understand the sweep of the meta narrative. Of scripture if we're going to understand what the heck our place is in it. So yeah I'm going to say it one more time then I'm going to hush about it Genesis to Revelation every single year. If you can do it every three months that's better. Really is it's not that hard. If you do it the way I'm doing it with the staff that's about 15 minutes a day. If you do it the other way it's about an hour a day won't kill you to be in your in your Bible an hour a day. You should do that. Okay. That's what we do at our for-profit company. Those of you who are pastors, you should definitely be doing something like that with your staff. But those of you who aren't, we have this lovely Supreme Court ruling called Hobby Lobby. And uh, get with your legal counsel and figure out how to do it. It's pretty cool. The big picture of where we are is that God created everything and therefore defines the boundaries of right and wrong and of what is real and what is not. Our issue with transgenderism is not that we don't like transgendered people. It is that they are trying to assert control over something that is not controllable by anyone but God. That won't work. The great theologian Benjamin Franklin said it really well when he said, sin is not harmful because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's harmful. People forget that. Sin hurts you. Now, we don't want to do it because it hurts God. But we ought to not want to do it because it hurts us. The fall is the foremost tragedy because it is an instance of a car saying to its maker, no, I don't need motor oil. And then everybody since has said, no, we don't need motor oil either. So we're just a bunch of of burning cars on the side of the road with our engines in flames. The gears are all seized up, basically because we're stupid. That's it. If you understand that, you'll get a lot further. Some things work and some things don't. So, so again, we have creation, we have the fall, we have redemption by the blood of Christ alone. And he is the way and the truth and the life. And there is no way to the Father but by him. No matter how many learned theologians and modernist pastors tell you otherwise. And then there is the ultimate redemption of the entire system. And we learn about that in Romans 8, I think, extraordinarily clearly. If people understood how important Romans 8 is to understanding Genesis 1 through 3, I think we would have a lot of less confusion in the church, honestly. But we see the sweep of history, and it involves both the men, which we're pretty easy with. We understand things that are about us. We're, we're pretty good with that. But but also the sweep of all of it. Do you think God created the heavens and the earth just to burn them down? No. That's silly. The earth was given to Adam, but not in its fullness. God planted a garden in Eden. Remember that? Note that the garden was in Eden. It was not coextensive with Eden. And he planted this garden and he put the man in it and and he made the woman uh, for the man and the two of them are there and he tells Adam first and foremost to scientifically classify all the animals. That seems like a pretty good job, and he helped because he brought all the animals before Adam, and Adam gets to point and grunt at what he wants to call them. And And he says, tend this garden, and then he gives us the creation mandate. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over everything, everywhere. And that is roughly paraphrased in the Rod Standard Version as, take this garden as a template and make the world like this okay now there aren't enough adams and eves to do that job hence reproduction and with enough reproduction you can actually fill the earth and subdue it and subdue it isn't just about making it pretty or making it full it's about making it like the garden now we see that accomplished at the end of the book because, as you know, at the end of the sweep of all of this, when God has redeemed all the men and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, we also find that the new Jerusalem that floats down out of the sky is Edenic, is it not? All the symbolism from Eden, the gemstones. The rivers, the whole shebang, it's all there. And in that city, and this is, of course, the most Edenic thing about it, and in that city there was no temple, for the Lord and his son were its temple. Because the meta narrative of Scripture is really about God's presence with us, that's the really dominant theme. In the garden, God walked with all mankind. You probably don't think about it that way because there are just two people, right? But wait, that was all mankind. And we are told expressly that in the new Jerusalem, in the new earth, he will walk with all mankind. It will be that kind of intimate relationship. You say, well, he's with us now. That's right. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer, which is glorious and wonderful. And through the shed blood of Christ, we don't need the sacrificial system that made you ritually clean, sufficiently to come into the presence of a holy God who dwells in the Holy uh, Holy of Holies, enthroned above the cherubim, in a temple in Jerusalem near you. We don't have to have all of this ritual purity to be able to dwell in his presence because he has decreed us pure by the shed blood. So the Holy Spirit doesn't have to be behind the veil. The Holy Spirit can actually be in you. And that's wonderful and that's glorious and that was foretold by Isaiah and that was foretold by Jeremiah and that's was foretold by all the prophets. But, but what's even going to be better is when you can go have a taco with him. I went to Chewy's last night. I loved it. I promise you their cheese dip is the nectar of the gods. It totally is. And I'm looking forward to having some with Jesus because in that city... There is no temple for the father and his son are its temple. The point of the temple isn't some religious ritual. The point of the temple was an outpost of the presence of God among his people. And in the absence of sin, there's no need for separation. The separation comes as a result of man's rebellion because sin is not just some religious concept. Sin is treason. You have committed treason against the king. What is the penalty for treason? Death. So you either have to be put to death or somebody has to be put to death for you. Hence, Christ. And if you place your faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, you shall be saved do so today, there is no other way. So, so this is the great purpose of the entire sweep of history from the garden to the second coming. Also in that you have the redemption of men. So many that they shall number as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. But that's not all. See, that's where we stop. Good religious people that we are. We like to focus on the spiritual. It's not all he's doing. Did he repeal the, the creation mandate? Oh, no, he did not. Indeed, he restates it to Noah after the flood, does he not? Oh, Well, now that's interesting. So, the entrance of sin did not stop God's project. In fact, the entrance of so much sin that he wiped out all but one family from the face of the earth did not stop God's project. It seems to me that suggests that God's project is pretty important to him. Right? Okay. If that be so... You say, why are you setting your phone down? Because I don't want to go for six hours. That's why. So they don't have a clock for me. What is God's project? Remember, it was make the world like the garden. Take this template and make everything else like this. Well, what is like the garden? Is it vegetable plants? Is it trees of life? Is it rivers? We're just going to, you know dig rivers everywhere? No. What is the defining characteristic of the garden? I mean, and you can come up with some things, beauty, of course, and all these different things, but the biggest thing is the absence of scarcity. In the garden, mankind as a whole had absolutely everything they needed. There was no want. When I was a kid, I didn't understand that word, so since there are children present, I'm gonna define my term. Uh, I thought that meant I wouldn't want stuff. (laughs) No, 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 you can want stuff all day long. The absence of want means the absence of lacking things you need. The absence of scarcity. If you have no want, you aren't hungry. If you have no want, you aren't sleepless. If you have no want, you don't have, you're you not wearing worn-out clothes and can't replace them. The absence of want, the absence of poverty. In the garden, there was no poverty. We think of poverty as being the lack of stuff, and maybe there's some truth to that. We think of, of wealth as the presence of stuff. Maybe there's some truth to that, but that's not really what it is. Wealth is the absence of scarcity. It's not the accumulation of stuff. I said this yesterday. It's the absence of scarcity. Wealth is the healing of the world physically. You say, well, that sounds really terrible because we're not supposed to love stuff. I didn't say you should love stuff. I said you should push back the curse. Is there somebody you really want to be in poverty? Is there a widow you want to go hungry? Is there somebody with a disease you don't want cured? Because that's poverty. Wealth is the lack of those things. The lack of lacking. In heaven there is nothing but wealth. It's not that heaven has lots of stuff, it's that heaven has no want. So pushing back the curse or fulfilling the creation mandate is the increase of wealth. And of course the most important wealth that we are seeking is not a material wealth of any sort. It is the presence of God because all true wealth consists in that. The primary scarcity is the scarcity of that. The scarcity of God. I don't know if y'all saw the, the Noah movie that was really controversial a few years ago, but one of the neatest scenes in that movie, which of course is very controversial, but one of the neatest scenes in it, Tubal Cain is shaking his fist at God and he says, why won't you speak to me? Why won't you speak to me? Well, we know why God won't speak to him. He's a sinner in abject rebellion and he's still demanding fellowship with God. Now, you are too, I, so am I, but it's different, right? Because you at least recognize your sinfulness and you have placed it at the foot of the cross. And God puts on his, we talk about rose-colored glasses, God puts on his Jesus-blood-colored glasses and sees you through the blood of Christ and, and who takes away the sins of the world. And so when he sees you, he sees you as spotless and therefore may be reconciled to you and you to him. Tubal Cain, in the movie, is angry That God does not give him what he would have had in the garden, but he doesn't want to pay the price of submission necessary to receive it. That is the state of all flesh. That is who we are before Jesus. And in heaven, that doesn't exist because he is with us always. In the new earth, that does not exist because he is with us always. Always. So the ultimate lack, the ultimate poverty is the lack of Christ, but it's not the only poverty. Go to any third world country or just go to an inner city here and you see poverty. And it's tragic and it's sad. And people have different ways of attacking that. And, you know, some of them work better than others. San Francisco seems to be trying to attack that by letting people defecate in the street and uh, give, them, give them needles so they can shoot up heroin uh, with a clean needle so they don't get HIV. And you know all, all kinds of things that you just look at and say, I, I, were you people just born that dumb? I mean, what is wrong with you? But that's their effort to make it better. I would suggest not electing that effort on November 3rd. Charity is good. We want to be charitable. Ronald Reagan, another of our great prophets, uh, said that really well, though. He said the best jobs program is a job. Seriously. I try to create jobs. I try not to engage in too much rod fare. You know, we give a lot away, but the best way to make things better is to help people be productive. And have purpose and hope. So I told you at the outset we want to we want to avoid this being the worst of times, but it really is or should be the best. And I think you live in the best time in human history right now. Now, your grandchildren, if, if we get it right in our generation, will live in an even better time than you. And indeed, we should be constantly striving for the next generation to live in a better time and on and on and on and on and on until Christ returns. But I tell you, Judges teaches us we have to refight these battles every generation. And that shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't daunt us and it shouldn't upset us too much. So if the ultimate poverty is the lack of Christ, but there are other forms of poverty, and we know that God's aim from the beginning <laughs> okay but umpa and we know that God's aim from the beginning was actually to finish his creation to make it flawless in every respect and he continues to do that and you see how many diseases have been cured just in our lifetime How many medicines exist that no one could have dreamed of a hundred years ago? How many of you have grandparents or great-grandparents who didn't have indoor plumbing? You know, there are countless people around the world who don't have indoor plumbing right this minute. My mother had no indoor plumbing at one point in her childhood. We've come a long way. I still meet people who are the first person in their entire family to ever go to college. The idea that the world is getting worse is abysmally myopic and self-centered. It is shocking how we do not count our blessings. When I was a kid, the per capita income in China was $324 a year. Now that's what we call extreme poverty. You say, well, yeah, duh. No, I mean, that's literally the definition of extreme poverty. A dollar a day or less. Did you know that in the last 20 years alone, we have lifted a billion people out of extreme poverty? A billion. Do you know we're on track in the next 20 years to lift another billion people out of extreme poverty? Extreme poverty, by the definition that we have had for most of modern times, is about to be completely eradicated. Don't tell me the world's not getting better. It is shocking what is happening. And people don't know. People are so focused on the immediate that they miss what's really going on. They miss the forest for the trees. And you say, well, how did these things happen? Oh, that's easy. We've actually applied God's law quite systematically throughout the world in a way that you don't really perceive. You say, how can that be? Because all these places are unchristian. Yeah. But his rules work whether you believe in him or not. It's a crazy, crazy thing. If I jump off a building, I'm going to fall and hurt myself. That's called gravity. It works. You don't have to believe in God for gravity to work. By the way, it works in a positive way too. I sat my phone down on this podium and it stayed. That's gravity. God's law works. Either way, it turns out that when I don't steal and I don't covet and I don't lie, people do more business. Did you ever think about that? Okay, how many of you are going to rush out and sign a business contract with someone you know is lying to you? Ah, you know they're defrauding you, so you're going to run out and do business with them. Everybody in? With the lack of trust and the lack of integrity in little things like covetousness and stealing, business becomes impossible. In the absence of the possibility of business, there is the absence of the possibility of investment. In the absence of the possibility of investment, there's the absence of the possibility of job creation. In the absence of the possibility of job creation, there is the absence of the possibility of lifting anybody out of poverty. They're just gonna be poor. They're also gonna learn all the wrong lessons because we're gonna send them all kinds of foreign aid and they're gonna learn that the thing you do is wait for the UN to send you fill in the blank and you don't work and make things better. Sometimes helping really does hurt. There's a book called that, you should read it. You are here for multiple purposes. Sometimes we lose track of the idea that you can have more than one purpose, but yes, actually, you can. Let's try to get past first grade and let's handle this. You're not just here to witness. Yes, you are supposed to witness. None of you are witnessing enough, so get out there and do more. You should do that all the time. Absolutely. But also, you're here to actually solve concrete physical world problems because that's the creation mandate. You say, well, that doesn't sound a lot like making the world like the garden. Oh, yes, it does, because the garden had no want. Your job, whatever your job is, is to solve the want that your job addresses. So if you have a mom-and-pop grocery store on the corner, your job is to sell groceries and do a really good job of it, and that will help cure hunger in your area. If your job is for Nike, Your job is to make sure that people's shoes don't wear out and little kids don't go with with water getting into their shoe every time it rains. I've had shoes like that, by the way, and it was not fun. If you work for a doctor's office, you're there to heal the sick. If you work for the post office, your job is to make sure the mail shows up on time. Has anybody had a paycheck not show up ever? What happens when that happens? Do your bill collectors not call you? No, you have a duty, and it makes the world better when you do your job well. And your job being done well enables other people to solve other people's problems, and the world gets better. Let's take that at a macro level. So I live in Destin. Anybody been to Destin? Ah, yes, pretty, isn't it? Good Morning America said we have one of the ten most beautiful spots in the United States, and I can attest to the truth of that. Fact check, true. And and I have the best view in town. So you should come see me. We'll do the next conference in my living room. That'll be great. And there's a whole bunch of pretty white sand out there, isn't there? So when the conquistadors sailed past it, Did they all build a great big Spanish city right there at Destin? No, they did not. Why not? Well, because right behind that pretty white sand is a swamp. These days, it's condos, but back then it was a swamp. Ever tried to farm in a swamp? Not pretty. Ever tried to farm on white sand? Not pretty. Useless, actually. Pretty? useless. And with the lack of disposable income, hence want, it doesn't matter that it's pretty, does it? Because you can't do anything with it, because you got to spend all your money on clothes and food and shelter. Ah, But around the same time, somebody figured out how to make sand into glass. Actually, they'd figured that out before, but you know. And around that same time, somebody figured out how to turn sand into lenses. What a fascinating idea. Turns out you can look through these things and actually see people. I can't see you without them. You're an undifferentiated blur right this minute. I mean, I don't even know if anybody's there. It may just be a big quilt. Seriously. Oh, there you are. Somebody figured out how to make them into lenses. Then they figured out that you could make that into telescopes. Well, that changed the world in a pretty big way. Asked Galileo. Didn't change it enough to make the Pope happy, but that's okay. And uh, around the same time, they figured out how to make it into a microscope. So after a while, they figure out that, that those little things down there are germs, and they can hurt you. And that became useful at some point. And and after a while, somebody figured out how to make silicon chips out of it. And so that became useful for those of us who wanted to do something like PayPal. And, uh, and we did some good with that. And, you know, some people came up with this. And by the way, did you know that this one thing I'm holding has more computing power than existed on the entire Earth when we walked on the moon? Isn't that amazing? Moore's law. But we did walk on the moon, and a little bit before we did that, we figured out how to use the same technology to put up weather satellites, and all of a sudden you could figure out when hurricanes were going to come kill you. So that meant you could get out of the way. And all of a sudden, people, because of all those other things I said, had disposable income, and so they could afford to take a vacation to the beach. And if you knew that you could get out of the way when the hurricane came, now you could build stuff there. And all of a sudden, there's this huge wealth-producing industry out my window. This is dominion-taking. dominion taking This is making the world better. You say, well, that doesn't sound very high-minded to me. Well, that's fine, but take your kid to Destin sometime, or for that matter, Disney World, and look at the joy in their eye and tell me that that wasn't awesome. Because we're at the Fight, Laugh, Feast conference. Turns out joy matters. God spends a lot of time talking about joy. We get real serious about all this stuff, but actually you're a whole person made in the image of God, and God exhibits all these different things. Joy and anger and, and flashes of brilliance and rest and, and all of the range of your experience, just better. You're a lot more like your father than you think. And all of those different parts matter. So yeah, the fact that you can come lay out on the beach and go up into the crab trap and get some gumbo, that's actually dominion taking. It also creates jobs for people who need them and put their kids through college or maybe some of those waitresses are going to college or whatever. These things matter. There's dignity in all of it. There's dignity in vocation. Your job is a calling you don't just have to be a missionary for what you do to matter. Uh, in in Tom Askell's new documentary, I'm, I'm doing the thing on vocation. Big shocker, I know. And, uh, you know, and I talk about, actually it's in the trailer. I, I talk about the janitor at Taco Bell. Boy, that sounds like high calling, huh? You bet it's a high calling. You don't mop that up over there, I slip and fall and die. What happens to my kids? You don't clean up in the kitchen, I get food poisoning and die. What happens to my kids? The janitor at Taco Bell may be the most important person in the world. Einstein may die in that Taco Bell, but for the janitor. You don't know. We can't see all of the second and third and fifth and 20th order consequences of our actions. Therefore, we don't know the importance of our callings therefore we diminish them frequently but the truth is everything you're doing matters all the time and God sees it God actually saw it flawlessly before the foundation of the earth and placed you exactly where you are to exactly that end even when it's frustrating even when it's not going quite where you want exactly as quickly as you want He's got you exactly where you need to be, and you should trust him for it. That doesn't mean that you should be so content that you just lollygag around all lazy like. No, you should be creative like your father. Your father is the creator, and you should match him in creativity. But you should be content enough to understand that what you're doing right this minute counts because it does. So they said something about the moon. You saw that, right? You probably figure I'm gonna talk about space or something. And you're right, because I totally am. David Beeman, where are you? Ah, great. So this guy actually works in propulsion at SpaceX. I kid you not. Give him some applause here. David's more important than you think he is. I don't care how important you think he is, he's more. So here's a fundamental reality that most people either didn't learn in economics or they had some Keynesian or socialist professor who didn't teach them. I don't know which. I'm betting the latter. You get what you incentivize. Okay? That's a really good lesson for child rearing. You get what you incentivize, don't you forget it. It's also true of economics, because it's true of everything. You get what you incentivize. And corollary to that, as you reduce the cost of anything, demand for it correspondingly increases, okay? So what we have experienced over the course of decades is a cost per pound to orbit of about $10,000. That means that some of you I can send to space more cheaply than others. David will have to invent two different rockets just to lift me into orbit. And it's expensive. It's very expensive. I may have to get a suborbital flight. You know, it's bad. You're living in the best of all times because right this minute you're living in 1500 but with aspirin. You're living in 1500 but with air conditioning. You're living in 1500 but with enough food to support a population of billions. You know the whole world had a population of less than a billion in 1800. When I was born in 1969 we had three billion people. Right now we're pushing 8 billion. Say, oh no, it's out of control. Quite the contrary, we don't have enough. The problem is we're about to see population decline globally, and that's a fact, and I've only been telling everybody that for 20 years, and they're finally figuring it out, but look at the demographic trends and you'll see. Overpopulation. What are you talking about? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. God does not agree with the Planned Parenthood crowd at all. Not on their methods and also not on their philosophy. No, people are the most valuable thing. You want more people, not less. So, anyway, how is that possible? Because revolutions in technology have created the ability to feed tons more people, so much so that we now have childhood obesity in West Africa. That's a trip. Wow. I remember Live Aid. I remember all that stuff. Some of you are not nearly old enough to remember that, but I turned 51 today, so how about that? Anyway, ah. the cost per pound to orbit was $10,000, give or take. That means you don't send much stuff into orbit. It's pretty much going to be reconnaissance satellites, weather satellites, communication satellites, things that really, really, really got to be there that really, really wealthy institutions can pay for. What David over here is doing is he's working on bringing the cost of her pound to orbit down to about 15 bucks. Yeah. He won't get there this year, but he's on his way, aren't you? Not just him. His boss, Mr. Musk, might have something to do with it. So... What you have to understand is that when you bring down the cost of anything, demand for it just goes to the moon, as it were. So when I tell you, as I have told you on podcasts and told you in articles and told you in books, that by mid-century we're going to have a million people living and working in space, I'm not kidding. You say, Okay, that's kind of cool. Why does it matter? Well, we're getting there. But that's what's happening. Now, the last time we did anything like that was about 1,500. And some people took the slow boat on that one. My ancestors were a little late to the party. My my Cuban employees um, come from I guess in some ways, better stock because Columbus came over on his second voyage with 1,100 guys to form a colony. How cool is that? Can you imagine taking 1,100 guys to the moon on Apollo 12 in November of 69 instead of three? And they stay? No, those guys came to stay say, well, you know what, I don't really want to live under medieval Spanish rule. Well, I agree with you, I don't either, but I'm going to give credit where it's due. Go down to Guatemala sometime. There's a city called Antigua, Guatemala, and it was the capital of that part of the world for centuries. It's at the base of a volcano. You can imagine how well that turned out. And uh, there's a there's a cathedral there that is a ruin, and it's still amazing. I mean, the ruins are really cool. And uh, it's been a ruin since about the middle of the 1700s. And, and you look at it, and what str- everybody says, oh, this is really pretty. This is really nice. What a cool place to go on a vacation. I look at it, and I say, the Spanish built this on the Pacific side of the Isthmus in the mid-1500s. They had been here 10 minutes. They dragged all the stuff for a cathedral and had enough people here to need one just a few decades after Columbus. Wow. Those boys came to play. I wanna build the first Baptist church on Mars. That's what I actually, the first church period. It will be Baptist. (laughs) You Presbyterians better catch up. That's all I'm saying. It's incredible. The vision. Now, the government of my ancestor's country, the mother country, um, Albion, beautiful England, they didn't have that vision, they didn't have those resources, and they, they uh, had a few things going on. So Later, there was a joint stock company formed called the Virginia Company. You might have heard of it. And one of the first investors in it was, was my 11th great-grandfather, a fellow named Captain Thomas Graves, who later put his money where his mouth was, or rather put his mouth where his money was. He'd already invested. Uh, think of him as an early venture capitalist. And, uh, and on the second supply, which was actually the third voyage to Jamestown, uh, he came and settled there and lived, most of the rest of his life in Virginia. They carved a town and then a group of towns out of a wilderness and and decided and actually did create civilization where there was literally nothing. They deliberately picked territory where there weren't any Indians. There were some nearby, the Powhatan, who eventually tried to murder all of them, and uh, and unfortunately they won, but uh, slaughtered a third of them in a day. That wasn't too cool. Uh, sometimes the history of that gets revised a bit, but that's what happened. And, uh, and they built not only a, a Christian civilization in that wilderness, but also formed the first freely elected Parliament in the entirety of the New World. And my 11th great-grandfather was a founding member of that body, the Virginia House of Burgesses. That was a century after Cortez. So the English took a little while. But the English triumphed ultimately in building what became the greatest nation in the history of the earth because their ideas were better. And I don't blame the Spanish for that because they were coming straight out of the Middle Ages. They had just won the Reconquista in August of 1492. They had finally expelled the Moors from Spain. They had finally reestablished a Christian kingdom in in Hispania, uh, and they were finally secure in their homes and immediately went to the new world and we're just not going to blame them I don't think for some of their ideas being less good than some of yours. I just don't think that seems fair Do you. I think some of you probably hold some theological beliefs that are different than you did 10 or 20 years ago. And I don't think it's very fair when you jump all over some guy who's new to those ideas and you know, treat them like they've had the same 10 or 20 years that you just had to figure it out to get to where you are. And I think the church would be better if sometimes we would have a little more grace for those that aren't quite where we are. Likewise, I would suggest that we should have a little less presentism and a little bit more understanding for those who went before. So I'm not gonna pick on the Spanish here, but I am really glad that I am of English descent because the English figured out common law and the English figured out that mercantilism perhaps wasn't the only way. And the English figured out the idea of self-government in a parliament and the English didn't have a lot of the institutions that the medieval Spanish did. And when they founded Virginia and later founded Plymouth and later founded some of those others that eventually became 13 colonies and then states, they had some ideas that were a little bit more advanced than their predecessors had had 100 or 200 years earlier. That turned out to be very, very important for the future of Christian civilization because it turns out that America is the centerpiece of the globe. We're about 4% of the world's population and about a quarter of its economy. Did you know that? 25% of the world's economy is here with 4% and our leftist friends want to tell us constantly that that's because we stole it. But you can't steal what doesn't exist. Let me give you an example. Our, everyone's favorite robber baron. I just love that. Robber baron. John D. Rockefeller. Richest man in history if you adjust for inflation. Except maybe Solomon and we don't have a good count on his assets. So uh, somebody tell the IRS. And uh, but, but Rockefeller, you all think oil, right? And you're, you're correct to do so. But that's not how Rockefeller made his money. I mean, he used oil to make it, but that's not how he made it. What did I tell you about this? It's about solving someone's problem. It's about the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you solve a problem, whether you do it purely charitably or through business, you are loving your neighbor. And you say, well, that doesn't seem like love. I had to pay for that. Well, are you better off as a result of the exchange? I'll just ask you this way. Let's say you go buy a car. You need to go to college or you need to go to your job. What do you need more in that moment, your money or the car? you got to have the car. The salesman, he's got tons of cars. He needs your money. He has someone at home who needs braces too. He has someone at home who needs a dental appointment too. So guess what? In God's system of free exchange, where we respect one another's property and don't take it from one another at gunpoint, and we specialize in our different gifts within the body of Christ in a way where I specialize in one thing that I can help you with and you specialize in a different thing that you can help me with. When I exchange my money for his car, we're both richer. Oh, did you think about it that way? It's not an even exchange. I'm richer because I needed the car more than I needed the money, and he's richer because he needed the money more than he needed the car. That's, That's the Copernican Revolution. That's what our socialist friends don't get. You're literally creating wealth every time there is a fair and free exchange. So what did Rockefeller really do? Rockefeller invented, I'm being a little silly, but Rockefeller invented light. Like God. Say, well, he can't possibly have invented light. God already did that. Yeah, but not indoors at night. God put lights in the sky. The sun by day and the moon by night, but it's the darndest thing. You go in your house and you close the door and you can't read by the moon. What Rockefeller did was he figured out that though kerosene had become a thing, it wasn't safe and it was prone to volatility and it blew up in people's homes and it set their homes on fires, uh, fire and it killed their kids and nobody could trust the stuff. And he said, you know what? We need a standard. We need standardized kerosene that you can trust to be safe and secure and it's, it's got a certain quality to it. It's got a certain safety. It's going to have a fair price. Uh, let's call it standard. Standard oil. That's where that came from. They built the biggest business in the history of the world by letting little girls be able to read their lessons after dark. Everybody says, well, he was a robber baron. No, you can't steal what doesn't exist yet. He created it. And by the way, in the process, brought down the price of kerosene 90%. 90%. What a robber baron. Oh my gosh. No, no. John D. Rockefeller became the richest man in the history of the world by solving more people's problems than anybody in the history of the world. Not just the little girl studying her lessons, but also the factory that can now run three shifts instead of one, the library that can stay open after work hours, the hospital that can see patients, the, the opera house that can actually put on events after dark, The world changed overnight. At the end of the American Civil War, you went to bed in darkness. You went to dinner in darkness. Ten years later, let there be light. And John D. Rockefeller created, I don't know, this much wealth, this much wealth, so much wealth my arm won't go that high. And he took about that much of it. You think he earned it? You think Andrew Carnegie earned it when he invented the steel revolution that resulted in all of the skyscrapers that exist in the world and all of the safe bridges that existed in the world? You think Steve Jobs earned it when he absolutely transformed the world? Again, more computing power right here than existed in the world when we walked on the moon. You think he earned it? He got a tiny fraction of the value this is to me. Because it's not just measured in money. It's measured in the benefit to all of us. And you can't put a price tag on that. Do you know how many Bible translations I have on this? It's crazy. I don't even know anymore. I've got all of Calvin's commentaries. I've got all the other commentaries. If there's a commentary, I've got it. I mean, there's everything on this. When, when my class graduated from high school, we didn't have the interwebs, and so, so we all lost touch. We got together a class reunion in a month. Every single member of my class was back in touch, and we have been now for 10 years. Can you put a price on that? Free exchange gives you a future that is extraordinary compared to all that has gone before and it is the following of God's law which turns out to inevitably and inexorably carry out the creation mandate until there is no scarcity, there is no want, there is no lack, except for the one thing that no material thing can ever Supply, which is the presence of God. And that's the other side of the exact same point. Creation mandate given first before the fall, Great Commission given second after. They are one and the same. And when we are done fulfilling both, someday, and the Lord returns, the world will be flawless again. Perfect in every way. So every day you should be witnessing. Every single day you should be witnessing. And you need to do it more now than ever because did I mention we're going to have a million people living and working in space, thanks to David, uh, mid-century. Do you think it's going to stop there? There will be billions in the middle of the next century. I don't know who will discover how to get to other solar systems, but somebody will. The Star Trek fans know that it's Zefram Cochran and he'll fly the Phoenix on April 5th, 2063. Everybody else, we don't know. (laughs) I hope he works for Martin Laboratories. Anyway, uh, we we are in this epic moment that is like 1500 that changed the world because suddenly there was a new world. There are about to be new worlds. It's happening because somebody's pushing back the curse at SpaceX. It's happening because other people are pushing back the curse at Apple. It's happening because other people are pushing back the curse at your local state farm agency or Piggly Wiggly grocery store or Taco Bell. But all of us working together in the callings God has assigned to us, the spiritual calling we all share to constantly witness to the the personhood and the salvation of Jesus Christ alone and then our separate individualized callings in our specific work these things have eternal value eternal value you are radically more important than you think you are. And you need to feel that importance not for your pride but for your humility because when you realize just how important each piece of God's puzzle is and how big that puzzle is, you're suddenly going to realize just how magnificently great God is and how flawless his design is. I was a little annoyed that we only said my talk was about to the moon and back because I'm going way further. The moon is just the beginning. And you will see a lot of that in your lifetime. Plan to build a church there. Plan to build many. Plan to see Christian civilization everywhere. Because folks, here's the thing. It could be the worst of times we could let the communist Chinese dominate the future. We could let the communist Americans dominate that future. What you do every day, civically matters too. We've got an election coming up, it matters. A lot of our friends thought it didn't four years ago. Three Supreme Court justices later that Hillary would have named, are you ready to say it doesn't matter anymore? It always matters because the greatest blessing we have temporally has to be our liberty, has to be. We uniquely get those blessings in America in a way that no one ever has in all of history and we want everyone to share those blessings too. One of the greatest poverty in this world is the lack of freedom, the lack of the ability for a John MacArthur to stand in his pulpit and preach, the lack of the ability for you to go and hear him, the lack of the ability to speak freely about the gospel and not be persecuted and not be put to death, the lack of the ability to have a say in the lawmaking that will shape the culture in which your children are marinated And if you don't think that government has anything to do with how your kids are being brought up, you are blind. So folks, we could lose this shooting match. God won't, God will redeem it. But maybe not in time for your great grandchildren. So take it seriously. This should be a golden age. And I'm telling you, if we don't blow it, the next couple of decades, the next five decades, are going to be the greatest golden age in the history of mankind. Praise God we get to live in this time. Praise God we get to be the warriors who go out and make it that. We get to do his work in this time of all times. Think of the generations who worked their whole life and didn't get to see this promised land. And if we do it right, this promised land will build to the next and the next and the next and the next and our great-grandchildren will look back and say how primitive we are like we do Little House on the Prairie. That's what we want. The moon isn't far enough. Fill the earth and subdue it. Notice that that isn't a capital E. Capital E would designate the place that is the planet called Earth. It is a decapitalized E because it means wherever your feet shall trod and I'm telling you God created a really big universe and you're supposed to fill it all and subdue it. So get to work. Let's go.
0: the season of Augustine and the season of Cassiodorus were very different moments in a crucial transformation that occurred in the history of the Western liberal arts. All right, so just stay like this. How, how am I doing here? So, yeah, you don't like you don't like this, huh? What does a Christian education look like when non-Christians are the ones who control the institutions of learning? This is a question that confronted Bishop Augustine of Hippo in North Africa in the fifth century AD. Augustine lived at the twilight of the Roman Empire. He himself had been trained with the best learning that Rome at that time had to offer. He himself actually came through the ranks and taught rhetoric in some of the best schools. It was then after he had come of age that he converted to Christianity, but he wanted to continue the project of education, but this time for Christians. And so he had to confront the question, what does a Christian education look like when the unbelievers control the field? when they control the institutions, when the whole ap- apparatus and curriculum of learning emerge from a pagan environment. And so Augustine wondered, what is it that Christians should jettison? What is it that Christians can embrace? What is it that Christians can adopt, but in modified form? These are the questions that Augustine confronted when he sought to educate Christians in an environment when unbelievers dominated the field. A century later, we see a man in the south of Italy named Cassiodorus, who faced a very different educational landscape. He had to ask what did a Christian education look like in an environment where unbelievers had abandoned the project of education altogether. The infrastructure of learning had entirely eroded. If education was to proceed at all, it had to proceed on the foundation of Christianity. The Christians had to be the ones preserving education. What does a Christian education look like when Christians are the ones forming the institutions, when Christians are the ones organizing the curriculum? Well, these two seasons in the history of education, the season of Augustine and the season of Cassiodorus, just 100 years apart were very different moments in a crucial transformation that occurred in the history of the Western liberal arts. We're going to be studying this story. We're going to be going back to the sources. We're going to go back to Augustine. We're going to go back to Cassiodorus. We're going to ask ourselves, which of their predicaments most resembles our own? Which can we learn from Augustine's period? What can we learn from Cassiodorus's period? As we confront these questions, we're going to engage these sources, and we invite you to join us here at New St. Andrews College.